new clock and it's wrong, so don't look at that. I've got five extra minutes, so. <laughs> but it might get me to finish sooner. I doubt it, but, but it might. Any case, uh, by way of announcement, let me get, have you welcome uh, each of you, and um, Andy and is in Maine, and Jerry is in Missouri, so they're going to miss the p tomatoes today that uh, comes from <laughs> Ken's farm. So there's some tomatoes downstairs, and pretty good ones, have I see, homegrown organic tomatoes, so th there you go. Uh, so downstairs, there's some bags down there, get you some as you leave church this morning, and so you can have something for lunch, too, if we go a little long, in any case. Um, if you don't already have it in the back, there's a song we're going to do, hopefully at the end, <coughs> if I'm able to finish up the message this morning, uh, but I'll try, and we'll finish out with this uh, hymn that really kind of goes with some of the content that I want to talk about today from Hebrews chapter 1 and focus in Psalm 102. And so be sure to get that's in the back. And then the only other thing by way of announcements, most of it you can get in your uh, bulletin, but I just want to thank you for participating with us on our Wednesday night Zoom. We have missions in July, and we're going to extend through August. It's part of the reason we have these flags up here. We're doing it online so that we can bring in a lot of missionaries. And I'll send out the link, but we'll, in, we'll pray at 6.30 on Wednesday online. And then at 6.45, we'll introduce our missionary and have a discussion with our various missionaries. This is very helpful for them as well as us, for them to have encouragement from brothers and sisters in Christ to know who's praying for them. Isaac will give us um, a report on missions in just a bit, but I appreciate your participation, and if you're not into the Zoom uh, computer, there on the email link we send out, there's also a phone number. You can just dial in, and some of you did that. And again, I want to thank you for your support to listen in and to participate and see what's going on in missions. Uh, now we're going to go ahead and begin our worship service with a reading from the life of Christ as our fellow elder comes forward, Blake, to do the reading this morning. Good morning. Um, we've enjoyed looking at the birth and life of Christ over the last month or so during our call to worship, and that's where we'll be again here this morning. We're looking at uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38, and the ESV is entitled this section, Jesus presented at the temple. So verse 22, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to, of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we come to you now and asking you to prepare our hearts to worship Jesus Christ in all we do. We're thankful for the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, and may it not fall trivially on our lips and our thoughts and our mind, but truly may it um, be a significant truth that we revel in day to day as we think about this light of revelation given, given to us, a people who are not your people, a people who were going astray, going in a different direction, and beyond that, rebelling against you, and yet you give us the light of your glory, of your grace, and we praise you indeed for it. I pray, Father, that you, through the work and power of your word, I pray it will not return void, but accomplish what you purpose in it today. <coughs> I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit, we may see a greater degree of that glory of your truth revealed. I pray, Father, for anyone that is outside of the kingdom of God, that they will be welcomed in today by the power of your spirit. I pray the gospel as it goes forward and the way we read the scriptures and talk about your truth, explain it and sing it in every aspect. I pray, Father, that it will go forth and accomplish what you purpose, the power of God unto salvation. I pray that you would save many. I pray that you will sanctify many. And I pray that all of us will be increasingly satisfied in you. I pray for those that are outside. Um, may we have great pity on those that do not know of your grace and glory. I pray that uh, our satisfaction and enjoyment of who you are and all that you have done would overflow in our lives so we would call many to come and see the glory of Christ. I pray that you would be exalted in all we do, not just in this day, but in days to come. Prepare us, Lord, to, to live as salt and light in this world, prepare us, Lord, to be able to <clears throat> push back against the tides of evil and point forward to the glory of your goodness and call many to find refuge in you and you alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Psalm 104 says, My soul praise the Lord, Lord my God, you are very great. So let's stand and let's worship in song here this morning, number 24, O Worship the King. All four verses of number 24.
Grace, which like the Lord, the giver, never fails. Amen. Good morning, church. I have just a, a brief missions moment uh, for you this morning, really just an update as to where uh, we are in um, our missions in July. A uh, reminder um, that this month we're taking a special offering for our Anchored in Truth pastors. So if you uh, feel led to give on that, just uh, note that on the envelope or on the memo of the check or what have you. Um, and we don't pass the plate. You know we have the box in the back, so just a reminder there. Um, over the past two weeks, we've chatted with, uh, on that first week, it was Blake Keenum in Canada. Uh, an old friend now, we've met and chatted with him for uh, several years in a row. Um, and then this past week, it was uh, Jason Gillespie in South Carolina. Um, the first time we've uh, chatted with him, and I think uh, it wound up being that he's related to, uh, to one of the families. So uh, that was uh, fun to find out. But we learned a lot about those guys and um, uh, different situations and things that are going on in their lives and in their church, uh, specific people. Um, that are uh, seeking baptism or really earnest about wanting to learn more about the gospel. Um, and so remember to be in prayer uh, for these men, for their families, for their church, for the community that they live in and, and uh, the people that they're uh, uh, witnessing and ministering to. This coming Wednesday, we will chat with uh, Josh Tancordo, who has uh, visited here before. He's preached here. Uh, his church is in uh, Pittsburgh, um, if you'll remember him. And uh, then the following Wednesday, it will be Steve McAllister. He is the Anchored in Truth Director of uh, Missions. He's also visited here multiple times, so you'll probably remember him. Uh, please join in uh, with us on Wednesday nights if you're able. Um, it's a great time to get to know some of these guys. The idea is uh, to, to make it personal. Uh, to put um, a face with the name, uh, to get to know them, to get to learn about their past, their, uh, to get to learn about their family, their church, how they got where they are, and what God's doing in their life and their ministry now. Um, also, it's never too early to look ahead to next year's True, True Church Conference. That'll be in February. I think it's normally the third weekend uh, in February, so... Uh, start thinking about that, praying about that, planning on that. So if you can join us for that trip, it's just a couple of days normally. Um, it's always a great time where you actually get to meet some of these guys in person. Most of the ones that we've chatted with uh, try to make it down there every year, so it's an opportunity to get to actually uh, meet with them, sit down, talk with them, have a, a meal with them. Um, that's all I have for an update. I want to spend some time in prayer, so uh, if you would, let's pray together. Father, you teach us from your word that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Lord, we pray this morning for these preachers whom you've sent, uh, the ones that, um, that I've mentioned, um, Blake Keenum, Jason Gillespie, Josh Tancordo, 
the others that we'll, we'll get to uh, chat with, and many, many others, Lord, that, that we support through Anchored in Truth. And then um, even outside of that, Lord, the, the world, you've, you've scattered all around the world uh, faithful preachers of your gospel. And we pray for these preachers, uh, for the gospel to be the center of their ministry, that in, in all that they do uh, from the pulpit, that they would be focused and centered around your word and the gospel of Christ uh, in, in all that they do in their church and in their community, Lord, that it would, it would be focused on Christ and his saving work. Yes. We do pray for their strength and their commitment, um, even in times of, of difficulty, uh, in a time when Christ and his gospel is certainly out of season, uh, that that you would strengthen them and, uh, and, and encourage them. And, and, Lord, we pray for unity in their churches. Uh, we pray for the salvation of their children. Uh, just as we pray for the salvation of our own, Lord, you've given these children to us to care for, but they are yours. And, uh, and we pray that you, would, that you would save each and every one of them, Lord. Um, Many of the churches that we meet and, and talk with, they're crying churches, just like ours is. There's always a, a little one crying, and, and it's, it really is a blessing to have such um, children-filled churches. And, and Lord, we, uh, we pray for ours here and, and those that we know um, that all of these children would know Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray for the salvation of the... Uh, the loss that you draw to hear the gospel in these places, the loss that you draw to hear the gospel here, those that you draw to hear the gospel in uh, Manitoba, Canada, in, um, in Lexington, South Carolina, in all these different places around the country and around the world, Lord. You draw these people to hear preaching, and what they should hear is the gospel of Christ. We know that will that will, is what will have the effect on them. And, Lord, we pray that you would soften their hearts, that you would uh, give them a heart of flesh, and uh, we just pray that many souls would be one even today. Yes. Also pray for our time of worship here, uh, for the gospel preaching here in this place, that uh, Christ would be glorified in what we say and do here and that we would all be built up and strengthened and, and made more like our Savior today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Isaac, for that. Let's take our hymn books one more time and stand and turn to number 302. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Rejoice in the Lord always. I, I will say it again, rejoice. Philippians 1, 4. 302. Rejoice, the Lord is King.
Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 119, starting from verse 65. It's on page 513 in the Pew Bibles. Now, around 2007, I was living in Senegal, a, a Muslim country in West Africa. I didn't have a smartphone or a laptop. I almost had too much time on my hands. A lot of my workouts would be just plodding through these sands in uh, the desert. And I thought, oh, why, why not just try to memorize some of Psalm 119 while I'm plodding along? Like, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. And I didn't get very far, but it was still very uh, fruitful. Uh, and I bring that up because, many of you know, this is one of the psalms that is an acrostic psalm or it just follows with uh, the Hebrew alphabet. Then instead of A, B, C, it's A, B, G, and so on. And uh, here we're, and uh, this is a longer one. So when you have your stanza from that letter of the alphabet, every single line starts with that same letter of the alphabet. So this uh, piece of spirit-inspired scripture is, uh, it's almost asking to be memorized. It was written to be more easily memorized, especially in its original language. Like uh, some evidence of that in this uh, tet part, in starting in verse 65 that we're going to start with, uh, that's your T sound. Like you've probably heard of mazel tov, and that tov, tov is the word for good. And you see, you see that word good popping out over and over again in that uh, particular stanza. Good it was that I was afflicted. Good is what you are and what you do. Uh, good judgment is uh, teaching me that. And uh, when we read the Bible, we want to go both wider and deeper, wider where we systematically read through all of it, and deeper where we study and memorize uh, and uh, meditate. And the, we'll come across in Hebrews that uh, the word is living and active. And you can really feel that if you have a, a piece of Scripture memorized, and you believe it as a word of God and believe it as being true. It's like a, like a living uh, companion that's uh, there with you uh, in your heart. That we've said a lot about how Scripture is supreme and sufficient. And this whole big chapter of Psalm 119 uh, speaks to how it is uh, sufficient for what we need in our spiritual lives, what uh, the word of God uh, does in its work on our hearts is what we need, and it is uh, sufficient. We don't need to go beyond that with uh, all of those other theories and methods and uh, extra extra things. Uh, what can keep a, a young man pure by living according to the law of the, uh, the Lord? Uh, can't be considered a, a young man for too much longer, but it's still true that that's, <laughs> that's what you need. Well, let's read. Psalm 119, Tet. Uh, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Yod. Your hands have made and fashioned me. 
Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart, may my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Lambda. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Heavenly Father, help us as a community of faith and in uh, a church that uh, you are uh, building uh, to uh, uphold your word uh, as uh, the very word of God and uh, help us to uh, both study it intently and also to uh, love it. Uh, help us to study what your law commands of us and give us the grace to love it uh, even when it afflicts us. And I pray uh, that uh, today uh, that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your word and I ask that you would uh, prepare our hearts to uh, receive it uh, in a, a way that would glorify you and uh, that would teach us how to think like you think and to uh, conform us to the image of your son. We pray that uh, this would happen uh, today, that uh, you would, we, uh, we stand in awe of how you are worshipped all over the world. And I pray that uh, the money we give to this church and uh, to missions uh, will uh, advance uh, the kingdom of God. Uh, help us to uh, thoughtfully and joyfully give to missions during this time. This we ask in your name. Amen.
some technical issues this week, so I'll use the podium mic and try to remain here most of the time. We do have folks that are tuning in <coughs> that are away, and so we'll want to be there for that. Uh, my focus is going to be Hebrews 1 and verses 10 through 12 to focus on the permanence or steadfastness of Christ. The text reads this way, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will have no end. This, this statement that is made here in 10 through 12 is the sixth of seven Old Testament quotations that the author of Hebrews, which I liken to a, a sermon from the first century. He's taking this reference here from Psalm 102, which we'll turn to here in just a minute, Psalm 102. This statement, as quoted here in Hebrews 1, focuses in on the majesty of Jesus Christ and his relationship to creation. As we noted last week, the psalmist in Psalm 102 ends with this quote, this phrase, this statement that is being quoted. But Psalm 102 really begins with the affliction of the Messiah, of Jesus. This is the high king of heaven as it's culminated in mentioning you, Lord, laid foundation of the earth. You are the creator, this high king of heaven. The image is that he, he stooped down, if you will, from his throne to gather a people for his own name's sake. And he does so at great cost to himself. That's the affliction. It's not just in the crucifixion, this event, it's all of life as he lived it. A transcendent God condescends to make himself imminent with his people, that is to dwell with his people. It is only through this one who comes down from heaven that you could be hoped, that you could have any hope of being lifted up to him. Surely he has come down and in his life bore great affliction. The prophet Isaiah speaks of that in Isaiah 53. Listen to this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Psalm 102 then begins in that way. This high king of heaven would have great afflictions and sufferings. That's what we emphasized last week. He does so as Messiah for many purposes. One, certainly, that we know of is for the atonement of our sin. He was indeed afflicted. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation means payment. On Calvary, sin was paid for. All of those who have their sin imputed to Christ, he pays for. The propitiation of his people because he himself has suffered when he was tempted. He is then able to help those who are being tempted. We emphasized that last week that whatever you're going through, Christ understands it. It isn't though, here's a transcendent God that knows the beginning and end of everything and doesn't feel any of it. He does. You know the beginning and the end. If you're in Christ, you know if you repented and believed and trusted him, he is going to come and get you and bring you to his eternal kingdom. Forever and ever and ever, you know it. So what are you worried about? What are you grieved about? What are you suffering about? This is the human condition. We understand that. He's not mocking you for that, penalizing you for that. It's just calling you then to, if you recognize the affliction that you're in, then look for help. It's going to come from the Lord. Look for hope. That's in him. And ultimately healing, it's going to come from him and no other source. And that's what we'll unpack today. This it is necessary then for Christ to be afflicted that he might be the propitiation for your sin. And beyond that, he's also God incarnate can then identify specifically with whatever you may be going through. That affliction then provides another purpose in the sense that here it provides a, 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 an, a real personal and experiential relationship between man and God. That's phenomenal the creator of all, engaged with his creation. The author of Hebrews will expound on that in chapter 4. I'll read it for you, verse 15. We do not have a high priest. He was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that's the distinguishing factor of Christ. He never failed. Pushed to the very limit, he never broke. He really was tempted. It really was genuine. He really was afflicted. Whatever afflictions that you might have, he was pushed to the absolute limit and never failed. Why? Because he's God. And the third thing which we'll focus on here is then this, in this affliction, the affliction that Jesus endured, the affliction for which he triumphed over, it certainly provides the, the um, solution, if you will, for our sinful dilemma. But everything that we know, everything that we could put our trust in, everything that we could find a solution for is temporary and perishing, if you will, because it's within this creation. Jesus is the only Refuge, I'd argue, that is enduring, permanent, unchanging, steadfast. This concept about who Jesus Christ is in comparison to everything else bookends the book of Hebrews. You've already seen it here if you're in chapter 1 and look at verse 12 and the very last phrase there. Speaking of Jesus, a quotation 
From Psalm 102, it says what? But you are the same, and your years will no, have no end. All right? That's how this begins. You want to see how it ends? Hold your finger there. Look to chapter 13 and verse 8. Notice the comparison. It emphasizes the same point. 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's your solution. That's why it's Christ and, and Christ alone. And hopefully you can see how this steadfast hope in this one, Jesus, is indeed your only help. He is your only hope. And use your only healing from whatever you might be afflicted in at this very moment. It is the permanence and unchangeable nature of Jesus Christ that is going to function as an anchor for your soul that will never release. It will always hold. William Martin wrote in the early 1900s, Though the angry surges roll, On my tempest-driven soul, I am peaceful, for I know. Wildly though the winds may blow, I have an anchor safe and sure that can evermore endure. Do you know Jesus Christ? Is he the anchor of your soul? And it holds. My, My anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale. On my bark so small and frail, by his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. That is all that holds us together. Find your resources, your refuge, your resting place in anything else. It is temporal and will fail. It is Christ and Christ alone. I want us to turn to Psalm 102 and finish our explanation of it, if you will. And I'll go ahead and read where I left off at verse 12 so that I have time, hopefully, to finish this. But just to remind you, this is the connection. This is a cross-reference to the preaching of Hebrews verses 10 through 12, that focuses on Christ. It's a quotation here at the end, and you'll hear it as I read it in its quotation. But it's put in the context of affliction. Hear my prayer, verse 1 of Psalm 102. O Lord, let me cry. Let my cry come to you. This is, you can feel the great passion in which this prayer is given, great affliction, This is the affliction which Christ identified himself with and finds empathy with us, his creation. He is indeed in the valley of the shadow of death. That's that's the setting of it. Drop down to verse 11. It says that very thing. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. You can feel the weight and the passion of this prayer. That's the hurt. Now notice the help then that dawns on his horizon. Verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. 
You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to, her, to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise. When peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord, he has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh, my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you who, whose years endure throughout all generations. Verse 25. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Let us pray. Father, I do pray, through the power of your Spirit, would you give us understanding of your word. Speak to each person in the way they need to hear from you. Pray that each of us would be submissive to your word, looking for that which you would say to the church this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me explain the rest of Psalm 102 here. It's the context that was, we mentioned last week in the time of affliction, the, the hurt, in which the context of this psalm unfolds, which is understandably where this transition works. At verse 12, the afflicted one looks for help. This vision of God then leads certainly to hope, a renewed hope in the truth of who God is, and then healing ultimately for all, all who are the children of God. This Help, verse 12, comes from a look upwards. You're throne, O Lord. You're enthroned forever. It's a look upwards. It isn't a look down. It isn't a look on the horizon around you. It isn't a look inside of you. The answers aren't there. Can I tell you where the answer is? It is that God is enthroned forever. That's his look. In the midst of his affliction, in the midst of his circumstances, in the midst of a seemingly purposeless events that may, going on, may be going on, he has stopped, finally, to take 
the rightful look, and that is to look upwards. To look upwards to God. Lord here is Yahweh. It's, it's God's, we think of it as, as his personal name, if you will. It's a recognition, of course, that God enthroned in heaven is, is sovereign. And the glimpse of God in his so absolute sovereignty is a relief from this affliction. He is king. He is Lord. He is authority over all. Not temporary, not in time, but forever. That is eternal. Even in the darkest night, in the most difficult time, remember God has never abdicated his throne. He's never stepped away from his authority, if you will. Everything that he has promised, everything that he has planned, everything that he has purposed will surely come to pass. And that's why the call then is to look upward. The psalmist would say in 138.8, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. God will fulfill his purposes and specifically for you. And it is based on his steadfast love. That idea of steadfast love, it, it is a faithful, enduring, merciful, gracious love that and, and it's emphasized there in 138.8 as well, it endures forever. He looks to the throne in Psalm 102 that endures forever. This is talking about the very character of God, which doesn't ever end. It doesn't ever change. It is permanent. Evil will not triumph over God. God will even use the vice of evil men to accomplish his virtuous purposes. He will accomplish, he will fulfill all that he purposes. And so in the midst of that setting of affliction, look to God for help who has a purpose in all, who is sovereign over all. He is on his throne and his throne is forever. Verse 13 of 102, he has pity. He's speaking of mercy granted. Not, not something that is deserved, but something that comes from the very character of God, of who he is, pity on Zion, and favor is the second word I would say that relates to grace. Mercy is not giving somebody what they actually deserve. You deserve judgment. Grace is, is giving something that you didn't merit or earn. It's, it's unmerited favor, we might define it. And here it's explained here. Pity and favor, mercy and grace, it, it comes. It comes because it is essential to the very nature of God, but it comes at a specific time. Notice here, as the appointed time, and it has come. This 
pity and grace here in context, it primarily refers to the redeemed people of Israel. But it applies to all that are redeemed in Christ and are grafted into that host. And when is that appointed time? It is right now. This is a time of grace. This is a time of mercy. In the midst of great affliction, that appointed time has come and it's come now. It, it will be fully consummated at the end of the age, and it, what, it, what indeed it, it points to, notice verse 14 is just a poetic way of talking about you hold dear to the stones, it says, and, and pity the dust. The idea is there, there's some value to the nations and to the lands and the things that you hold dear, and God will show mercy. He will show Favor, grace. Notice verse 15 of 102. The nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. This points to the eschaton, or the end of the age, in which every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He will put all things right. It is help, hope, and healing. Notice verse 16, and here again, the, the psalmist is putting this away, which points to an ultimate end that wasn't realized, certainly, in their day. Some have argued, well, it's the restoration of, of Israel as they're released from Babylon, but that only points to a greater reality Notice verse 16, where the Lord builds up Zion, this would be another way of talking about Jerusalem, He built, which pictures God's people certainly as well. But notice here, verse 16, it says, he appears in his glory. Here is the full glory of who? Yahweh, who comes forward, this one who granted mercy, who granted grace. Here is, is a recognition of a coming and a coming in the fullness of his glory. Well, we know it's messianic. It points to Jesus Christ. And we would call this his second coming. He came first in a time of great suffering. He will come again as a great sovereign. And when he comes as a sovereign, all will recognize him. And for those that are finding their rest and refuge in Christ, this is great help. This is great hope for the believer. Paul said in Titus 2.13, describing what the church is doing now in this time, in this appointed time, when we receive mercy and grace, and promises of what? Of the appearance of Christ in his glory. Titus 2.13. Waiting for, and here's the description of it, that blessed hope. That's where you find hope in the midst of whatever you might be going through. It is looking forward to this promise of Christ, which here in the Old Testament as well, it points to him appearing in his glory and 
If you don't get the connection, Paul fully spells it out in Titus 2.13. Our blessed hope, what is that blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the church looks forward to. He's going to appear in glory. Back to our Psalm 102 and our explanation of it. The help then looks forward to to, to Christ who is coming. But in the meantime, verse 17 of 102, notice it says he regards the prayer of the destitute and doesn't despise their prayer. The prayer of the destitute is the one who is afflicted. And God the Father heard the prayers of Christ, the ultimate afflicted one, all of those who will come to God by faith and pray, he will hear those prayer. And notice it's not just regarding it, recognizing it, if you will. It is not despising the prayer. I think the despising the prayer would be ignoring it. There are many who have an idea that, uh, well, does our prayer actually do anything since God will fulfill his purposes, complete all that he has promised, and, and accomplish his will? So why bother engaging in prayer? Because it is the instrument by which God will use to accomplish those things. Your prayers are, are not meaningless, they're meaningful. And when you, you find whatever causes you to go in prayer, which, by the way, great affliction has a tendency to do that, doesn't it? When you recognize the temporal nature of the world, your, whatever you might be going through at a particular time, it drives you to go to God to find something enduring and lasting, helpful, hopeful, healing Go to God in prayer, and your prayers will not be despised. The church then is called to pray for one another. Your prayers aren't meant to change the mind of God. He doesn't change. But it is to change those things and circumstances in the world in which we live, which he will use to accomplish his purposes. You say, I don't know how he does it. Well, that's great, because you're not God, and you don't have to. All you do is believe in him, okay? But one of the greatest things we can do as a church is to pray and to pray for one another. I think we prayed at least three or four times so far in this service. This is not fill time in which we're spending just to kill a little bit of time. It accomplishes its purposes. And beloved, pray always. Make that part of your life. Reminded the passage of Revelation 5, where it talks about the saints who prayed, and it describes it as a bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You can look it up, Revelation 5, 8. The imagery there is that God doesn't throw away your prayers. He keeps each one of them. We may forget what we prayed for. We may think they're insignificant. They're not to God. He doesn't despise them. Back to 102, let this be recorded for a generation to come. 
so that a people yet to be created may praise you. You're the people that come. You understand you're reading this from a couple thousand years ago. It was recorded, and it's still here. This is God's very word. This is why we reverence it and, and, and read it and memorize it. It is God's inspired word, the only absolute authoritative source of absolute truth, stood the test of time. It will not go away, though many try. Here is truth recorded, and it is for you. And the purpose of it, and why we spend so much time reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it, explaining it, and exhorting and encouraging from it, so that you will praise God. So that your response, and here in context, in the time of great affliction, is to say, yet, yet he slay me, I will hope in him. I will praise him. I will exalt in him. How will you possibly do that? Through his explanation of it, through his divine word. This is our ultimate purpose, is to praise God, to worship him. And indeed, indeed, it is our greatest joy. You may be thinking at a moment in time in this temporal world that your greatest joy might be and think of a hobby or think of an event or something that you do. I don't care what you put in that category. It's not lasting, is it? The problem is it is joyful, but it ends. It runs out at some time. Eat the biggest and del- most delightful meal, <laughs> but, but you won't be able to continually do that. These are just but shadows of what waits ahead in the very presence of God. Praise, as we think of it, sometimes can be difficult because we're so enamored with our own self and our own circumstances that we might not think, well, that's all that great. And I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. All I'm saying is if you found something good and if you find something joyful, delightful, go ahead, enjoy it, and, and experience it and so forth as good gifts from the God, of God, but they are good gifts to let you know what it would be like in his presence, without sin in your life, without those barriers to experience a, as Psalm 1611, I think it is, says, in his presence is what? Fullness of joy. Verse 19. This God enthroned in heaven Verse 19 of Psalm 102, he says he he looks down. He looks down from his holy height from heaven to the earth. And in so doing so, this is this condescension, if you will, he hears the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die, that they might gather together and worship the Lord. Tom Constable notes in his commentary, the psalmist looked forward to a gathering again in Zion. This took place to a limited extent after the exile 
but it will occur on a worldwide scale in the millennium. It's, it's looking forward to truly being set free, those who are doomed to die, if you will, under the bondage of sin. Help, beloved, is going to come from above. Look to God. The psalmist would say in 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In affliction, look to God for your help, but he's also your hope. Notice how this unpacks here then the hope that is given in this help in verse 23 of Psalm 102. Again, this is messianic, so it's speaking of Christ. It says, here's the circumstances refreshed again in verse 23. He's broken my strength in mid-course, shortened my days, and here's a prayer, take me not away in the midst of my days. Notice the shortened days and the midst of the days. This refers to, ultimately, fulfilled in the death of the Messiah, who will be cut off in his youth. This is the culmination of the affliction which the Messiah will receive and suffer. He will suffer death. And it is in the midst of his days, if you will. A.W. Pink describes it this way. Few things are recorded in the word are more affecting than this, that the Lord Jesus... The perfect man should at the age of 33 be deemed by men as unfit to live any longer. That's, that's intriguing, isn't it? Young man, perfect in his ways, 33, deemed to be unfit to live any longer. He had hardly entered upon man's estate when they crucified him. Do you think that it was nothing to Christ? Ah, brethren, he felt it deeply. Who can doubt it in the light of his awful plaint? He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, oh, my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. He felt as a man acutely as this being cut off in his prime. Those words of the Savior make manifest what was suffered in his soul. He was perfect man with all the sinless sensibilities of human nature. A very touching type of Christ, Pink goes on, illustrates in Leviticus 2.14, in which each grade of that meal offering described in Leviticus 2 points to the humanity of the Redeemer. Here in verse 14, Israel was bidden to take green ears of corn dried by fire to offer it to the Lord as an offering. The green ears of corn speak of Christ. Christ also, by the way, speaks of himself in this figure. You can find it in John 12, 24. 
these green ears of corn in this Levitical offering had not been fully ripened and so were then thus dried by fire, a symbol of being subjected to God's judgment. And so it was with Christ. Man's sickle went over the field of corn and he was cut off in the midst of his day. He was barely half of the threescore and ten. So here in the, in the midst of this great affliction, the cry is, take me not away. And what is the response of the Father in Psalm 102, which is clarified in Psalm, uh, I meant to say Hebrews 1.10, you Lord. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, Psalm 102.25, and the heavens are the work of your hand. This is the response of the Father to the Messiah. And again, we, we noted that last time. You can find that clarification from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10. Jesus had been called Lord by many. But here it is, the Father, and prophesied in Psalm 102 that the Father will call him Lord. No other higher authority. We're privileged here to get both sides of a divine intertrinitarian conversation or prayer, however you wish to, to mention it and or describe it. But what is emphasized here then in the response to the affliction? The response is a focus on the son's immutability or his permanence. He's the creator of all. So he remains above all creation. He existed before time was time began, and therefore he will continue when it all ends. Notice verse 26 in Psalm 102. Here the analogy is then given to help us understand the unchangeableness, the permanence, if you will, the immutability of the Messiah, Christ, Speaking of the world and all that's in it, verse 26, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you, you will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, verse 27, and your years have no end. This is, again, the midst of affliction, Help from God, hope in his permanence of Christ. As he would, as a writer of Hebrews would say in 13.8, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is a right perspective on the world in which we live, which is, as is described here, it's, it's like, in contrast to Christ, it's like a garment. It's something that needs to be changed, as garments would be changed, and that they will pass away or they will end. This speaks to the temporal nature of the creation as opposed to the permanence of the creator. And beloved, that needs to be kept in mind. Apostle Peter would describe that in his epistle. I'll read it for you, Second Peter 3.10. 
talking about the end of the days, the eschaton, if you will. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night, 2 Peter 3.10. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works in it that are done in it will be exposed. All of it will be gone, even the very works. It's speaking of the whole temporal nature of this creation. Since all things are thus to be then dissolved, here is the response to that, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God, that God would, in, would um, uh, give appropriate judgment to come. We're waiting for that day of God because the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. According to his promise, we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's the problem with the world in which we exist. In that sense, righteousness doesn't dwell in in the fullness of it. Sin impacts our earth. There's a great concern today concerning the temporal nature of the earth. And I think that is good because it is. What is not good is that those with various catastrophic theories think that they can do something somehow to put an end to it and live in some sort of utopia where righteousness doesn't dwell. It ain't going to happen. It'll all collapse. Catastrophizers think that, and they, they use all kinds of different terms for this. Right now, there's a big push on what they call climate change. When I was growing up, we had four seasons, but now, I guess I'm just mocking it. But in any case, the, uh, the climate will change. But what they're really getting back, if you re- get to the people who understand what's going on, they're focusing on man's impact on the earth and m- attempting to minimize impact of mankind and therefore create some sort of permanence and perseverance in our planet. They have poor motives in that regard and futile methods because it ain't going to work. Now, I'm not suggesting by any means that we are not to be good stewards of the world in which God has given us. In fact, in spite of the unrighteousness, Mankind generally is good in impacting the world. Th- these catastrophizers who, who, who do not have the view about Christ, who is indeed God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who, who reject what he says, they, they somehow think that the planet in which we live would be perfectly fine without us. That in its quote-unquote natural state, 
that it would all be a utopia. No, it wouldn't. It would be wild, dangerous, and dirty. That's what it would be. The impact of mankind, yes, can cause problems, no doubt, in poor stewardship, but good stewardship has brought about greater abundance in productions of food, greater abundance in clean water and clean air as we've learned technologies and worked for the flourishing of human beings. But don't miss this. The world itself is subject to futility. It's going to wear out like a garment. Uh, Again, using that analogy, clean your garment. (laughs) Right? Iron it. Take care of it. In other words, have impact on it for good. And if you, if you soil it intentionally, it's, it's going to be dirty. But ultimately, it's going to pass away and it will need to be changed. It will be need to be changed from that which is saturated, stained with sin, unrighteous, to that which is righteous, the new heaven and the new earth. It, it must pass away. And this is the destination for it. I don't have a lot of time here. But just to to note this in case you're missing it, about the earth in and of itself, from Romans chapter 8, if you want to see it, Romans chapter 8, it talks about the creation itself. If you remember, in the rebellion, in the garden, hmm, good garden, utopia, (laughs) Kind of nice until something happened, right? Man's self-will and rebellion against God. He would decide for himself what was good rather than trust and believe God, and it led to disaster. In the curse in Genesis 3, it isn't just Adam and Eve who are cursed and Satan who is cursed, but also the ground, the creation, From that point, thorns and thistles would appear is the way it's described. It would be difficult to work. It would be wild is the idea, and wild is dangerous and deadly. Romans chapter 8, we get a glimpse of the status then of this creation that because of the sin of man has been subjugated to to danger, if you will, difficulty. He says, verse 18 in Romans 8, he's going along the same line of afflictions in this life. He calls them sufferings here. They're not worthy of being compared to the what? The glory that is to be revealed. There there is a future hope of glory. Why? Because the creation, verse 19, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This is the glorification of those that are in Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. For the creation, verse 20, he's pointing back to the curse in the garden at the fall. For the creation was subjected to futility. Circle that word. 
It's subjected to futility. That's the world in which we live. It isn't naturally good and great. It's cursed too. And this is why, and I never try this, I kind of make fun of this. I, try, I do plant uh, vegetables and flowers and I get a lot of weeds. I thought maybe if I planted weeds, I'd get vegetable and flowers. It never works out that way. Don't try it. Because that's the natural state is weeds and disaster and destruction because it has been cursed to, subject to, here it is, futility. Not willingly, in other words, it didn't want that, but because of him who subjected it, that is, God cursed it, but he didn't do it for, to be there, he did it in hope. Note that. What's the hope? The hope is the restoration, the regeneration, and the revealing of the sons of God. And in that time, that is when that will happen, the, the end of the age. Then, at that time, the creation itself will be set free, notice, the bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the future. It's great hope. Again, this doesn't say that we are not to be good stewards. We are, and that's what God intended for us to do, to, to, to manage the resources that he's given to us, like gardeners to a garden. But it points to our redemption as well. The whole redemption has been, the whole creation, should I say, has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of the sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. And beloved, that's where it's heading, and that is the healing of all. Not in some sort of plan, system, or strategy, ultimately, but it is in, in Christ. It, our healing will come from him, and our looking to him for our help, our trust in him, to accomplish his purposes. Back to Psalm 102. And I'll have to finish with this. Notice verse 23. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Here is hope for a hopeless world. I've heard some people say that they don't want to bring children into this world because of all the evil, all the suffering, all the injustice. And I understand that. I grieve for the little ones who will grow up even in our culture and country and not be able to experience some of the freedoms that we have. I, they seem to be temporal for sure. And some of the insanity that is being communicated as normalcy today. It, it's really grievesome, for sure. But what hope will there be? Well, here is the hope that, you're, that, beloved, your offspring, looking 
to Christ to find help, to find hope, will also find healing, and that they will indeed be established as well. In Christ, there's a brighter and better tomorrow. And no matter how dark and difficult it may be, actually be in this life, it is a reminder to find their help, to find their hope, and to find their healing all in Jesus Christ. Because any other source, any other thing they might look to is just temporal, decaying, and falling apart. We're some, we are surrounded by reminders of the frailty and the futility of all we see and all we experience. And beloved, for those that have seen Christ enthroned forever, who recognize his permanence, It'll lead us to great joy for those who have received them. But one other thing, for pity for those who have not. And I pity them. John Owen puts it this way. This should teach us the misery of those who have no interest in him. He's speaking of Christ. The unbelievers, the people of the world, Many of our family and friends, the, the misery of those who have no interest in Christ. This should teach us to use earthly things for our present service and our present necessity, but without rest or satisfaction in them. In other words, recognize them as good gifts of God, but not in and of themselves. He would go on to say, use the world, that is, engage, enjoy those things of the world, but live on Christ. We have to go about the daily duties of our life, so in that sense we use the world, but we live on Christ. So our looking to him in his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his immutability, that is his unchangeable nature, is comforting then to the believer in whatever circumstance you might find yourself in, look to the unchanging Christ. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you grant us a vision of your grace and glory. And may it be satisfying to our souls this day and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen. Beloved, I want to give you a moment to think on these things. Julie, if you just want to play the background to I Hear the Words of Love uh, on this hymn. Oh, I, I think it's 195 in your hymn book. If you want to play that quietly while we take a moment to to reflect this hymn, and we'll sing this together as, as our benediction and focus on the unchanging of Christ. So take a moment to prayerfully think on these things, and then we'll sing it together as our benediction. Let us pray.
Father, grant us a clear vision of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray in his name. Amen. Blake, I'm going to have us sing, um, and don't get excited about the clock, it's off. Um, <laughs> I think. Uh, but let's, beloved, let's sing together. Um, I want to do, um, we'll do the first one, and then we'll do the last one. And the last one, focus on changes not. So that's, if it's in your handout, if you don't have one, there's some in the back. Um, I hear the words of love. It begins in verse 1 and then verse 5. I change, he changes not. And so think on that prayerfully as Blake comes to lead us in this hymn. Let's rise together. I hear the words of love. who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. And God's people said,